several decades now, there's been a repeating narrative about states not being able to afford the growing costs of their Medicaid programs or the growing needs of populations who depend on these public funds. Medicaid is a drain on state coffers, is a perception that's rather entrenched, only a little modified by the Affordable Care Act, which is underwriting Medicaid expansion programs in many states. So it's more than just a little intriguing to imagine a state where new policies, payment models, and care redesigns have come together to create the very opposite of a Medicaid program that's a drag on finances, always being squeezed into the existing health care system. Indeed, this real live program could hold the keys to a future everyone can learn from and increasingly get behind. Okay, no more mystery. I'm talking about what's going on in the state of Oregon and the latest bold moves with Coordinated Care Organizations, or CCOs. That's our topic on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're six years old as of this May, so happy birthday to us, and thanks to all our regular listeners and new listeners. We come to you bi-weekly, and also for later listening and convenience, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, Oregon is not the only state to learn from when it comes to reforms and innovations these days, but Oregon's journey is especially instructive, and we hope everyone who's joined today will learn something or leave with something new that can assist with your own work. So to our guests and introductions in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He has some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us on WIHI. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of our screen is the chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask all our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants in the bottom send to bar when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, and a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know we have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted over at, at, over at our archive at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program and fill out our very quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. Don't forget, if you like to tweet, use at the IHI in your tweets so we can get more people in on the conversation. So joining us by phone, uh, two people out in the state of Oregon. Chris DeMars is the Director of Systems Innovation at the Oregon Health Authority Transformation Center. That's the hub of the health system innovation in Oregon. And she manages a team that supports innovation within Oregon's coordinated care organizations, while also working to spread the coordinated care model to other payers. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Matt. All right, fantastic. Happy to be here. Wonderful. And by Chris's side is Ron Stock, who's a geriatrician, family physician, clinical health services researcher, and currently the director of clinical innovation at the Oregon Health Authority Transformation Center. Welcome, Ron. Good morning. How are you? Very good. Okay. Yeah, it's morning in, in Oregon. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> out here it is. Just wanted to remind you. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm sure that there are some of your neighbors out there who are also saying it's still morning. And here in the studio with me is Trissa Torres. She's Senior Vice President at IHI with responsibilities in a number of areas, including the pursuit of the IHI Triple Aim, transformation of primary care systems to ensure reliable care transitions, and 
engaging community partners to improve the health of populations and communities. Dr. Torres is a preventive medicine physician by training. Welcome, Trissa. Good morning or good afternoon, everyone, wherever you are. Wherever you are. (laughs) Now, those of you who are regular WIHI listeners know that we typically hop around the country, we go around the globe sometimes, we try and get in as many varied voices as we can. Today's program, and you'll let us know how we did, uh, we're doing things just a bit differently in hopes that you'll get a fuller picture of one state's reform journey. So Chris and Ron will pretty much have the floor this first half hour. They're going to cover, they're going to walk us through some different aspects of uh, what's going on with CCOs. And Trista's going to offer comments and maybe pose some questions throughout. And I'm going to keep us moving along. So we're going to just get started right now. So uh, Chris and Ron have sort of a tag team thing uh, figured out. And uh, we're all looking forward to your questions and comments when we get to Q&A in a little less than a half an hour. So uh, Chris is going to start us off, and we're going to start off, I've asked her to start off with just so we can all get oriented here, what is this right now? If, if you're not, many people seem to say CCOs, like it just trips off their tongue, but if you qu- don't quite know what's going on in Oregon, a uh, thumbnail sketch of what's happening, describe the system that's operating differently, and then you're going to tell us uh, in brief, because this is WHI after all, uh, w- what's some of the history uh, that got us uh, to this point, and welcome again. Thanks, Madge. Hi, everyone. So just to give some background, all of Oregon's Medicaid, or what we call Oregon Health Plan recipients, which because of Medicaid expansion is about a million people right now, receive their care from 16 coordinated care organizations, or CCOs, which are spread across the state and were launched in 2012. CCOs are the local health entities that have one global budget that grows at a fixed rate to provide coordinated physical, mental, and dental care. So CCOs are the delivery system for what we call in Oregon the coordinated care model, which includes the following components that you see on the slide in front of you, a sustainable rate of growth, we measure performance and pay for health outcomes instead of um, using traditional fee-for-service, transparency in price and quality, we engage patients to ensure shared responsibility for health between patients and providers, and use evidence-based practices to coordinate care. Now, the coordinated care model can be applied to any delivery system. CCOs incorporate the elements I just described, but incorporate some unique components as well. So, for example, um, they incorporate flexible services, which allow CCOs to cover services and items that patients need to remain healthy, such as gym memberships or rental assistance or transportation that wouldn't be covered by in a traditional health system a traditional health system. Population health approach is also used by CCOs. They're responsible for developing a community health assessment and a community health improvement plan for their entire community, not just their Oregon health plan or Medicaid members. And then CCOs are really focused on local accountability. They're designed with a kind of perspective of local accountability and governance, which includes a community advisory council, which I could talk more about later if you like, that's comprised of over 50% of Medicaid members and other members from the community organizations as well. So looking back as to why Oregon needed to reform its health system, about a decade ago, um, or even more, Oregon leaders recognized that cost escalation in our health system was just unsustainable. However, instead of using the traditional approaches to cut the budget, which would be, as you all know, cutting services or cutting members or provider rates, Oregon leaders decided to reform the delivery system. As former Governor John Kitzhaber would say, there's more than enough money in the system, but we just need to change the way the delivery system is structured to meet the triple aim and promote health instead of health care. So some steps along the way of this process, there was an extensive public process in Oregon that resulted in two pieces of state legislation that required the state to seek a federal waiver and started the process for the coordinated care model. These bills were passed in 2011 and 2012. Next, Oregon received a federal waiver in July uh, 2012 from CMS which established coordinated care organizations, provided flexibility for improving health, and came with a federal investment of $1.9 billion with the expectation that Oregon would decrease cost cost growth in our health system by two percentage points, from 5.4% to 3.4%. Oregon was also one of the first states to receive a, a Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation State Innovation Model Grant 
which further supported our transformation efforts, which were already underway. So kind of that gives a really high-level overview of the different um, kind of influences and, and policy and legislative and uh, financial supports that have kind of promoted the Oregon's health system transformation. All right, that's good. Um, and we're going to get to our, your, Chris, you're going to talk about before and after, but maybe I'll, um, before CCOs, in, but maybe I'll ask Trissa, what, what do you hear in that? I mean, these are policies, levers that have come about. Uh, kind of really shaking up uh, the environment of what's uh, possible. Or are going to stand out in terms of grabbing those uh, opportunities? Well, so absolutely. Um, as you said, Madge, there's a lot of innovation going on around the country. But one thing that I think is really impressive that I want to highlight that Chris pointed out is that when Oregon started, even though we're all very much driven by having to bring costs down, they knew that looking at cost and isolation was not going to get them to the outcomes that they needed. And so they chose from the very beginning to start with the balance of the three aims. And as you can see on their slide, better health, lower costs, and better care. Um, and keeping those three aims, or what we call the IHI triple aim, in balance was an aim for them from the beginning. And even in the brief um, description that we heard, there's elements of their model that speak to all of those. So really emphasizing improving health as a means to drive down costs and changing the way to deliver care as a means to drive down costs and all of those things working together, I think has been absolutely crucial to their success so far. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so uh, thanks, Trisa. So Chris, I'm gonna flip up this next slide here. This this is the uh, kind of before and after. Um, we're not talking haircuts or something. Uh, see, before CCOs, now, did were you just, uh, should we have had that one going already, or do you want to just speak well, to this a little bit? Probably so. Okay. Yeah, I did. So, so, but let's, why don't I just quickly run yeah, through it? Go ahead. Um, yeah. And maybe not even everything, but what you see here are certain components from the coordinated care model, the slide that was previously shown. So there's the issue of, um, connecting funding streams and having the fixed rate of growth, which is at this financial sustainability component of the model, coordinated care, you see that there. And then, like I said, CCOs also have some unique characteristics that are available to them, such as the use of flexible services. So they have a global budget, and then they're able to use these these uh, their budget to pay for services that weren't traditionally supported through the traditional health system. I gave some examples of those. And then they have the more population health um, perspective. That's where the community health assessments and improvement plans come in. And CCOs are very locally governed and controlled at the local level. Okay, so, that sounds great. You. All right, thank you. All right, we're going to turn. Thanks, Chris and Trissa. Let's now uh, head over to Ron. And you're going to talk to us a little bit about levers and implementation. Go ahead. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I was just going to uh, maybe just before we uh, do that, I was just going to comment a little bit about what what sort of really stands out in this history. I think to both Chris and I and to others at, in in Oregon that seemed uh, to really work uh, uh, in the past uh, uh, several years. I think certainly uh, the leadership um, is a was a crucial thing that um, you know having a governor who um, who was a physician uh, is uh, was an important thing to have the conversation and the ability, uh, uh, particularly to have a governor over a number of, of different uh, terms, and so having that continuity and sort of that institutional history, uh, even from the mid-90s, uh, really the, the narrative here about uh, how we got to this point uh, really uh, stems back to a couple of, couple of decades. But then I think the other is the bipartisan support, kind of coming back to the developing the policies that set up the infrastructure to make, uh, uh, make all of this happen. Uh, very strong bipartisan uh, support. But what, what also stands out here that that I think is very important it was the amount of community engagement, uh, the uh, very robust um, uh, input from the community uh, with over 100 community meetings, uh, hours and hours of uh, key stakeholders sitting in the room together uh, for, uh, for uh, well over a year to um, uh, hash this out together. Um, and I, I just I think that's really important uh, that, we, that we acknowledge that. Um, I, so I think the other thing is that we, um, in terms of uh, the, the delivery system, is that we've known uh, for a long time um, that there are a number of things that really work, um, but we haven't really been able to either implement or escalate it to a, a larger, um, a, a larger uh, uh, population. And I think that that's um, really a, a, uh, an important piece to recognize. 
um, that we now have an infrastructure that, that helps support and um, uh, incentivizes and motivates uh, 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 providers to, uh, uh, to move the, the model forward. So, you know, we have a history of trying to find maybe the one or two levers that seem to work, that if we just pulled these, then everything would be fixed. But the reality is that uh, we have a, a complex adaptive system and that really uh, uh, a number of things need to be pulled at, at one time. And that really none of this is very is linear. Uh, many of this has, has to happen sort of synergistically um, over time. And so we've identified uh, what we think are the, the key components um, to uh, to health uh, system change that we really need to pay attention to as we go through this uh, journey. And so, uh, as the slide indicates, we, uh, leadership is, was, uh, is a critical piece. And what I would say about leadership is that we've been intentional about not just um, uh, uh, providing, uh, ha having leadership and positions uh, to influence, but also to um, focus on emerging leaders through programs. Uh, for example, we have a, an innovation fellows uh, program where we're really working with emerging leaders across the state to help um, integrate them into this uh, model of care. The, the delivery system clearly needs to be uh, redesigned. Like I said, we've, uh, we've known a lot of this for, uh, for a long time. The problem has been implementation. Our focus has been on, on uh, uh, primary care uh, infrastructure building. We have a program that's a patient-centered primary care uh, program. You know, traditionally in, in past, we've, it's been more standards, uh, developing standards and certification. However, we're now beginning to integrate uh, uh, bringing with that uh, certification uh, the technical assistance to do uh, improvement within the practice uh, to develop uh, more advanced um, medical homes. Focusing on complex care, we identifying the populations um, that we care for that are at highest risk, and then what are their needs in that population and how we, can we deliver that? We've offered uh, uh, two uh, learning collaboratives around complex care for, the, uh, for our CCOs across the state and continue to focus on the issues around complex care that lead to, lead to better care. And then uh, the other uh, focus in the delivery system is around specialty care and providing access to specialty care, particularly for those uh, residing in the rural uh, and more frontier uh, parts of this uh, state. And one way in which we're um, advancing that is, is setting up a program, a Project ECHO telementoring program, um, which many states have also uh, started uh, uh, to uh, develop. Uh, integration of care, looking at the whole person, is a, a, a very important component. So uh, we've uh, spent a lot of, uh, we're spending a lot of time uh, thinking about how can we uh, uh, begin to integrate these uh, traditionally siloed um, ways in which we deliver behavioral or mental health and physical health. And uh, fortunately, with through a global budget, we've been able to braid and bring together the the uh, funding streams from. Um, for this population of the mental health with the physical health and uh, also for uh, dental health. Um, as Chris alluded to, we have community advisory councils and the importance of, of engaging the community so that we're held accountable uh, for uh, delivering care to the population uh, in, within that community. Um, much of this is being influenced um, uh, through carrots and sticks and having a financial uh, system in place that, that uh, financially aligned uh, uh, the work that we do uh, is, is important. Um, the accountability and transparency, we're going to talk a little bit here uh, uh, later in the uh, program about our metrics, uh, but the importance of, of having uh, being accountable uh, to uh, doing what we said we're going to do. And then I think being the important part here is also being transparent so that the, um, our Medicaid members, but also our community um, uh, communities and members across the state are uh, know uh, how we're doing uh, with some of the things that we're trying to do. Um, health information uh, technology, uh, obviously a very important piece. Uh, we're working on uh, developing secure messaging, uh, working on ways in which we can communicate electronically between hospitals and emergency rooms, um, uh, setting up information exchanges. A lot of that work is happening in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, conjunction with uh, the other clinical delivery changes. And then I would say I'm going to add here that I think an important um, uh, piece that's it's not on their slide, but that uh, I think it's important for us to have for the uh, state to have a hub in which uh, in which somebody can step back and look at all these different components and begin to uh, make the connections uh, and uh, convene folks around uh, these key components. 
uh, so that we um, uh, move these uh, um, move this model forward. And, uh, and that's certainly the role of us here at the Transformation Center and, and part of the reason that we're here. Uh, finally, I, I guess I would I, I think that we have a good idea of what the content is. What we just uh, what I was just uh, discussing with you, uh, but um, and what what needs to be done. But really, none of this, uh, quite frankly, gets done unless uh, or executed without people. And I think it's really important that we pay attention uh, to uh, the people who are pulling these levers uh, and be real intentional about how we address our workforce needs and uh, support our caregivers. And I really think about it in, in three different ways. One is uh, this is really about relationships, both within our practices, our hospitals, our communities, in developing um, new relationships, but also working on the relationships that already uh, exist. We also need to pay attention to our care caregivers. There's a tremendous amount of change fatigue um, out there. We're um, uh, trying to deliver care to patients that need care uh, currently and at the same time trying to redesign a uh, clinical delivery system. And so that really leads to um, uh, potentially to burnout, uh, keeping our, our staff engaged and, and keeping them vital, I think is an important uh, component. And then finally, I think we've under, uh, really underutilized a resource that could help us with our, uh, some of our aims, and that's our patients and our, our communities. And to begin to think about how we can engage them and help, have them help us uh, achieve some of the uh, population health and community health uh, aims that we're uh, trying to uh, get to. Um, so I think the question now becomes, so what are, what are uh, how do we know that we're making a difference? Uh, what have we learned so far about, um, about measurement and metrics? And I think Chris is going to uh, uh, spend a couple of minutes about that. All right. Yeah, thanks, Ron. So, so I'm going to just take a pause. And poor mm -hmm. Ron, I feel like I made you... <laughs> I, I I made you really get out a mouthful, and uh, with all of this, so thank you for rushing through very very big areas. Uh, if we even, I'm going to have, uh, we're just going to back up for a moment and talk okay. a little bit about the levers, uh, perhaps. And I want Trista to comment, and I want to thank all of you who are already typing in a lot of questions, lots of questions about money and payment, and tell us how that works. I think we're all going to have to go on a field trip. Um, I don't know what the what the travel costs will be for this, but we'll figure it out. Trissa, some thoughts. So as we're just about to start to move into talking about results, one of the things that really jumps out at me um, is the tension between, as we look to redesigning care, um, there's some things that we know work, and it's just a matter of implementing and spreading those, but there's other things that we really need to learn our way through, um, and that we're going to try some things, and they're not going to work, and then we're going to try some other things. And it sounds like uh, what we hear you saying is that you have some systems set up to allow you to do both, and that some of that is centralized and some of that is decentralized through the CCOs. And so as you move to results, I think that's just something else that we can be thinking about. Right. And I'm, thanks, Trissa, and I'm very aware in all those uh, big uh, levers uh, that you have on that slide, each one could be a, a show unto itself, sort of trying yes. to talk about yes. that. We'll, but we'll, fill, we'll uh, come back to some of these topics. Thanks, Ron. Uh, w during the Q&A, people are curious what are patients and families actually doing and contributing, just, just how does that money flow, uh, and maybe some of the things that have made the biggest difference. But I think that's going to come up somewhat now with you, Chris, talking a little bit about some of the early successes. So take it away. Sure thing. So, so one of the ways we know we're making a difference is through uh, some positive outcomes we're seeing in the CCO's metrics. So to get some context, there are two buckets of metrics that the coordinated care organizations are responsible for. First, the CMS was concerned about the, that quality might be adversely affected by transformation. So as part of our waiver negotiation, they, uh, there are uh, thir 33 performance metrics, they're called, that CCOs are accountable for, and there are financial penalties to the state if quality goals aren't reached. So that's one bucket. And the second is that the state conducts an annual assessment of CCO performance using 17 incentive metrics which include a quality pool that's paid to CCOs directly for performance. So those really are financial incentive metrics for the CCOs. And there is some overlap between, between these uh, two series of metrics. But some of the highlights you see on this slide that we're, we're seeing so far, so we're, we're finding um, that CCOs are staying within budget. Uh, and then since 2011, we have seen emergency department visits have decreased by 21%. Hospitalization for uh, COPD has decreased by almost 50 percent. 
We've seen increased developmental screenings by almost 60 percent, and then enrollment in uh, primary care, patient-centered primary care homes, so what we call the program, patient-centered medical home, has increased by about 55 percent. So there are, I think, some of the resources that Maggie are going to provide to the listeners. One of the links is to um, our most recent quality measures report. Um, and then, so that's, that's some of the lessons, not lessons, but some of the outcomes so far. And then I was going to end here with talking about some of the other lessons learned. So you can move to the next slide. Okay. And we, we've, t we've touched on some of these already, but just to reiterate, um, and Ron mentioned the leadership from the top. We had leadership from our uh, former governor on, on down. Many legislators were very supportive for, of transformation over many years. And then leadership from the, the community. There have been multiple hundreds of meetings, stakeholder meetings, community members engaged, Oregon Health Plan members engaged through the community advisory councils and, and, and other avenues. We've, uh, Ron and I both touched upon the importance of financial incentives, incentive measures, the kind of carrots and sticks and the the, um, the incentive measures that I just uh, touched upon are, are seen as the, the carrots, and it is um, probably shouldn't be so surprising how much those have driven behavior change, but they have really driven behavior change, and we could talk more about that. Um, the built-in infrastructure, the CCOs, uh, you know, 16 of them across the state, they, as I touched on before, have um, are controlled locally. They have a local governance board and a community advisory council comprised of members in the community, members that are served by the CCO. And what we found is that it's, you know, the CCOs are, it's easier for them to implement kind of transformation and innovative things when, it, when people already know each other. The trust has been built. The relationships are already there. Um, no one-size-fits-all. Uh, there is just, it's really unique in Oregon. You, you know, you've seen one CCO, you've seen one CCO is what we always say. They're very different from each other, and they have been able to kind of um, develop within their own culture and their own community community needs. And then I'm going to pass it to, to Ron to finish up this slide. Okay, Yeah, thanks. I guess that. I was just going to comment on the, the, you've seen one CCO, you've seen one CCO, and that really is quite uh, quite true uh, because I, I think each, all, even though all the 16 CCOs are, are different, each one really reflects the organizations and the resources that um, that already exist within their communities um, to care uh, for this uh, population. And that uh, really the, what, what occurred here was that with these organizations and entities that came together um, primarily around uh, having a global budget um, to uh, deliver uh, care to a defined uh, population, a population that you know, can be challenging at times for a lot of the communities. And I think we also realize that every square mile of Oregon is covered by a CCO, um, that the CCOs uh, really only in two areas of the state where there's a little bit of overlap, but for the most part, uh, the CCOs actually cover sometimes multiple counties. For example, Eastern Oregon covers 13 counties, and others it only uh, comprises one county. So, um, and a lot of these organizations have had um, have been delivering care to this population in the past through independent practice org uh, associations, IPAs, and so there is there was experience uh, uh, before. And what really uh, occurred was a, uh, an infrastructure that brought uh, different entities uh, uh, to the table uh, to work together. Um, and so what, what that means is then it becomes um, a developed uh, uh, that no one, you know, no uh, one size fits all. It really depends on what's, what's available within those communities to deliver the care that's necessary. I think what we found in, in terms of helping uh, the implementation of, of uh, some of the changes within the community, uh, certainly uh, I, I would say uh, bringing the capacity to many of these CCOs, uh, implementation and improvement science methodology, and I have to thank our, do a shout out to our IHI colleagues for um, helping us uh, do that. But really the idea is to uh, provide and, and uh, train folks uh, locally within the CCOs to um, do this work as opposed to the state taking on all of this to do it for the entire uh, state. 
Uh, we found that peer-to-peer -peer learning is extremely important, so that, that when we, we bring the CCOs together in the room and, and provide a format in which they can share their projects, their interventions together, that they begin to talk about um, how each other are their successes and their challenges, and, um, and they begin to learn in that way. And that's by far, I think, been our most successful um, interventions. Um, certainly practice facilitation, and then also identifying exemplar practices or sites where uh, they're really, you know, practice or clinical labs where we can actually point to and say to folks that uh, uh, these folks really seem to be making a difference. Um, talk with them, um, check with them about how you might be able to uh, uh, translate that into your own community. Okay. All right. Very good. I Really, you both have gotten a lot out there. All right, Trissa, before we go to uh, chat and get to some of these questions, reflections. I was on early successes. I was thinking always this reduced use of emergency department is one of these bellwether indicators that hopefully things are being dealt with in a better setting or further upstream. Are, are you impressed with some of these results? Yeah, I think the re results are incredibly impressive. And I, and I think one of the things that's impressive about the results is, again, it's not just focused on cost. It's We do see measures of utilization, but they're also measures that indicate improvements in care. Um, and ultimately, I think we're going to see measures of improvement in health, and we'll be looking for that down the road as well. Um, but so, and, and not just little changes, pretty dramatic changes. And I think that that really speaks to how comprehensive the approach has been um, across the entire state. Um, one of the questions that it raises to me as you start to move towards questions uh, is, is the next step moving forward and thinking about collaboration with other payers. So the CCOs, of course, are focused on Medicaid population specifically, but we also heard Chris and Ron speak to the fact that some of their efforts actually target the whole community. And I think ultimately there's going to be collaboration amongst payers to move towards these improvements for whole populations and whole communities. So it'll be interesting to see what those next steps are in moving in that direction. Okay, thanks, Trissa. And I, I'm going to bookmark that. Uh, thanks, Trissa. And bookmark that for Chris and Ron. Before we wind up this hour, let's talk a little bit about the private payer, uh, kind of where things may go. I think that's exactly right um, next. And in the meantime, though, I can see <laughs> lots of questions. And uh, you are going to do CCO's the movie, aren't you? Because I, I really, I, th <laughs> I, I think the, the part one and two. Part one and two. There's a lot of information. Like what? How did how did this happen? So that's good. Uh, so John, it looks like an awful lot of people are used to chat. But just a quick reminder: uh, CCO's the HBO miniseries. <laughs> right. um, uh, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants down where you see the send to bar in the chat. All right. Thanks, John. All right. Well, thanks for putting, uh, setting the table with a kind of rapid fire, you know, he, uh, uh, sort of outline of uh, what's going on. Uh, I think what I'd like to do, there are several questions that have to do about with payment and funding. And maybe what I'm going to start with was one of the first questions, which uh, is an understandable one. Are you talking about, is CCO another term for an ACO? And so um, I, I'm sorry if we didn't do enough definition, but let, let's just uh, clear that up and then talk a little bit more about the payment issues. Uh, I don't know if you guys are looking at the uh, uh, chat bar as I am. People are really trying to understand sort of that funding stream, that global budget. What happens if you don't meet certain targets? Uh, how do the uh, the 16 um, the the CCOs themselves? What kind of budgets are they on? And uh, really, we can't, of course, go into everything, but some thoughts a little bit more about payment. But let's start with uh, what is the definition? Who who came up with a CCO, and how is it either legislated or and is it a federal concept? Thanks. Yeah, um, so I'm going to start, and then Ron is going to fill in yep. any, any holes that I miss out. Uh, so as I, I mentioned, there are a few pieces of legislation that went through the state in 2011 and 12 that, that created coordinated care organizations, and they are partnerships between physical, mental, and oral health care providers. They receive a global budget that accounts for all that, that those different buckets of services. Um, oral health was, in, was folded in later, so that's just about a year old, but physical and mental health were integrated from the very beginning. 
Um, Ron, what else would you say? So based on, on the number of beneficiaries that sign up in, for that particular CCO, uh, Medicaid then allocates their uh, uh, money to that uh, CCO in a global budget, and it's then the uh, CCO's responsibility to uh, take that chunk of money uh, and uh, distribute it in a way uh, that gets the services done uh, and meets the metrics or even improves the metrics. Uh, in terms of the incentive metrics, so there are 33 sort of core um, metrics, but the 17 of them are um, have money attached to them. And so initially in the first year, there was a 1% withhold, I guess you could call that, and then 2%. This year, there's a 3%. And so in, in order for them to get that back, they need to earn that through, uh, through targets uh, for those uh, incentive measures. So that's another piece of the, of the uh, legislation uh, and the CCO uh, that's actually different than the ACOs. The ACOs have, um, uh, can be an organization or a group of practitioners who take on uh, a panel of patients, certainly is primary care oriented and quality focused, um, uh, but the, uh, uh, the model has been um, in the traditional ACOs of, of shared uh, savings, uh, maybe shared risk for some. Uh, in with the CCO model, it really they're given the, a global budget, and you know if they uh, they get to keep whatever is uh, is left uh, that they don't uh, may not spend. Yet they also need to be they're accountable uh, to uh, providing a certain level of of quality of care that that is being monitored. Okay. And the, la the thing that I will just add is that experience thus far is that CCOs are doing just fine with the budget as is. Yeah. There, I think I saw one of the questions in the chat. You know, what happens if the CCO the demand exceeds what the CCO can offer? We haven't we haven't really experienced that yet. Yeah, and I guess I would the other thing I would add I think is a bit unique about the CCO model is that it tends uh, the CCOs are uh, organized uh, really around counties or communities uh, and regions. Um, and that it really is within that community or region, the resources, the hospital, the medical groups, the community uh, resources that, band, uh, that are the stakeholders in this. It doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that ACOs uh, would be that way. They might cover a number of different communities or different parts of the state and so on. So I, I think that that's an important sort of thing to um, consider. Thank you very much. All right, I'm going to group another kind of uh, uh, set of questions. Hopefully this is right. People are interested in some of the interventions and the levers around the reduction in ED utilization. Uh, somebody has asked a little bit about the COPD, but also what, what, are, what, what kind of stands out? Uh, there's also uh, this question about um, are there, is there a sort of a new part of a workforce even that's sort of helping to kind of head off some of this ED use that may not be necessary or could be avoided? So talk a little bit about what, what would you say is kind of behind those ED reductions? Well, I, you know, I think uh, from a clinician's uh, perspective, I, I think uh, at this point we can, it's mostly speculation, um, but what I would say uh, from, uh, as a clinician, I think one of the things that has happened uh, with the CCOs is that the, the members are assigned to a primary care uh, clinician physician, uh, most likely a physician, um, that helps um, uh, the, means, that then means that the PCP and their practice are more accountable uh, for how that person is, is getting care. And so I think really directing people to uh, primary care infrastructure that provides more access and provides alternatives outside of the emergency room, I, I have to believe that that has some, uh, some impact. I know we know that some emergency rooms uh, use um, ED navigators. Uh, we've used uh, some uh, community outreach, I think identifying um, uh, complex uh, patient populations who uh, are complex for a, no a number of reasons. Um, and we have, you know, using our data to identify uh, those folks and their ED utilization, we can then begin to target and, and, send, and uh, use uh, interventions like community health workers um, and others to do home visits, to uh, intervene in ways that would, uh, I think, would impact uh, emergency room use. Okay, thank you. And this is a question I have that hopefully relates to some of the ones in here. Are you using new kind of staff? Uh, I mean, did these were these people kind of there in all these in this infrastructure and just needed to be kind of uh, their jobs shaped slightly differently, or were there new hires? Are you creating new kinds of positions? 
Well, one of, the, one of the areas that has seen growth since transformation has been underway here is in the area of what we call traditional health workers, um, tr community health workers in particular, but then there are other uh, peer wellness specialists that work in the mental health community. And there was uh, dollars for training within our waiver agreement with, a, with CMS to support um, community health workers. So that, that is one area that I think more many CCOs are starting to look at more closely, and there is an expectation that they start to incorporate some of those worker models within their within their um, organizations. I, I would say that in in terms of bringing up uh, standing up the uh, CCO administrative infrastructure pieces, that much of that was al already existed within the communities. So, for example, an IPA. Uh, there are a number of IPAs in the state that have been uh, uh, providing uh, care for the Medicaid population for maybe a decade or more. Um, and these are, you know, groups of physicians that have been at the table and talking about that and, and delivering care for um, a long time. Uh, and what this uh, uh, new model the CCOs did actually encouraged them to bring in other partners and other stakeholders from the community. And it was more, about, I think, around uh, developing those relationships um, that, uh, that, that had a clear aim and a, um, uh, a uh, consensus-driven aim about the kind of care that they want to deliver. And a lot, so there weren't a lot of, I think, uh, new positions. Uh, some, uh, some of the CCOs already had that administrative structure in place to administer uh, the, the payments and, and so on. Um, others uh, needed to um, actually, um, you know, hire out or uh, collaborate with an insurance, another insurer, uh, to uh, help, help them with the administration. Thank you. Um, Thoughts of Trisa? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask a question. Um, in your journey along the way, have you identified any things that don't work? Any things that you've tried that said, ooh, if somebody's coming behind us, don't do that one? Hmm. <laughs> good, that's a good question. Uh, yes, I'm sure they exist. What I'm doing is racking my brain for specific examples. I, I guess I would say there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of, of um, initiatives and projects that uh, CCOs are experimenting with, and I know that some of them aren't working. And I'm trying looking at Ron and thinking of a good example. Of I guess I think, I think of, of some that have been are still challenges. I think um, we have a number of projects that are going on and interventions that are going on that we're still trying to learn from. Uh, and, I, and I'm thinking about the behavioral health integration work in particular uh, because of the challenges of two funding streams that have been really quite different um, through the years and how to uh, uh, create sustainable um, uh, integration, particularly in primary care practices uh, of uh, bringing in a psychologist or a, a licensed uh, clinical social worker, um, that that has been challenging, the billing and coding uh, and credentialing around uh, some of that. So, we thought that it was just as easy as bringing people into the, into practice. Well, it's not that just that easy. There are, there are a, a number of coding and billing issues that that pop up. A lot of infrastructure issues, just even within the state and the and the organizations that need to be. Uh, if you have a uh, at the state level, if you have an organization that's that's designed perfectly to deliver a different model of care, well, you need to rethink about how uh, how we support a new model of care. So, you know, a number of challenges. That's a great, and I, that's I just a great thought example. of a few different. I thought of a few different ones, which are kind of outside the delivery system, but just about the model in general. The community advisory councils that I mentioned earlier. The requirement is they have over uh, at least 50% Medicaid members on those CACs, and that is very challenging for many CCOs to reach that target um, for a number of reasons. Um, many OHP or Oregon Health Plan members have, don't have uh, experience participating on an advisory body like this, and there is a bit of need for support to, um, to, to help some Medicaid members uh, along, and some CCOs have just had a hard time recruiting. Other CCOs have had a much easier time, and so the Transformation Center has set up vehicles or venues for CCOs and community advisory councils to learn from one another. Another uh, thing that uh, I'm not, it certainly has, it is working to a degree, but there are opportunities for improvement is the area of flexible services. Uh, the, the flexibility to provide you know, services outside the traditional kind of health, um, you know, billable health codes is uh, CCOs are, have questions about how to go about that. How do they manage that 
that expectation within their their um, their members, um, you know, and and still promote promote health when when necessary. Kind of what those the processes and policies and procedures and kind of working with the Oregon Health Authority. It's just it's been interesting, and the Transformation Center is also working on providing supports and a and a and a, a forum for the CCO to get together and talk about some of those issues. Those are excellent. Yes. Those are excellent granular examples of some of the struggles you're still facing. So that's fantastic, and one of them um, leads me to my next question, which is, and we saw some of these in the chat. Um, I wanted you to describe different ways that the patients are engaged, and so one of them that you described was on the the councils. Um, are there other ways that you really engage the patients and the communities in helping co-design uh, care and helping making these improvements along the way? That's a great, that's a that's a good question. Uh, I would say that the community advisory councils are the more, most explicit way. I think some CCOs um, through their uh, community health improvement plans that I alluded to before, uh, they were, the CCOs are responsible with the leadership of the community advisory council to come up with the community health improvement plan that looks at um, uh, priorities for improving health at the entire community level. There were many community stakeholders that were part of that. Um, as well. I know that's not necessarily at the patient level, but it's at the, the community level. Um, within the patient-centered primary care home um, approach, the medical home model, obviously there's, there's more patient um, engagement. I think Ron has some specific examples. Yeah, well, I was just going to mention, Trissa, that, that uh, we, uh, Oregon is also a, uh, one of the comprehensive primary care initiative states. And so, um, you know, for the last two years, um, uh, we've had uh, 67 practices, uh, primary care practices across the state who have been in, uh, involved with that in addressing the milestones, and certainly and one of the milestones in that, uh, in that initiative is around uh, uh, patient and community engagement in uh, developing patient advisory councils within their practice, uh, addressing CAPS uh, survey uh, uh, information and trying to apply that in their practice. And, and where we're possible, we're trying, uh, certainly through our transformation center, is to keep, uh, keep track of that work and to find ways in which the CPCI work uh, begins to uh, also become part of, of some of what's uh, happening in the CCOs and the redesign there. Okay. Here are some questions. I Thank you, Ron. Uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, uh, our wonderful guests really uh, kind of on the, on the hot seat explaining a lot to us here and really, really appreciate it. Um, I want to just clear up a couple of things. Uh, when you talk about Medicaid population now numbering almost uh, a million uh, that are being served, are we talking about adults and children? Is it yes, no? Yes, we yes we are. In fact, I just wrote a note to, to Chris is that we need to talk about pediatrics and to realize that our Medicaid population covers 56% uh, of of the children in our state. Wow. Over 50% of over 50, uh, of the, and over 50% of the births in the state is covered by Medicaid. So um, this is clearly you know a very high priority area. And I, uh, maybe Chris could talk a little bit about early learning hubs and right. and, and the connection uh, of work that we're doing in uh, in parallel uh, with our health. Healthcare reform also having to do with uh, early learning um, uh, work. So, a uh, kind of parallel. Should I do that now or no? Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, you, you heard my you heard my open my mouth. Um, I was just going to say uh, maybe as part of talking about the early learning, you could also give us a, a little bit of info. Uh, several people have asked about sort of that uh, cross sector relationship between what's going on with CCOs and other areas that have to do with social determinants of health, social service, etc. Uh, is that something that's yeah. emerging as well? Yep. So uh, the early learning hub is a perfect example of that. So. The a parallel transformation effort that was uh, started a little later than the, the coordinated care organization effort, so I'm guessing five years ago, four years ago, was the creation of what are called early learning hubs. There are soon to be, if not already, I think they'll, they'll be finalized this summer, 16 of them. They do not overlap with the CCO areas. Just by chance, there are also 16 of them. And they are partnerships at the local community level, once again, between the different players or stakeholders that would provide care and have kind of um, under their umbrella um, their early learning part of the social service system. So Head Start and schools, childcare um, uh, services, et cetera. The early learning hubs are uh, focused on really um, kind of outcomes such as kindergarten readiness, you know, those, those sorts of, of um, goals. 
the, the vision is that the early learning hubs and the CCOs really work in, in tandem, work in partnerships. They are required to have um, an MOU, a memorandum of understanding about how they would work together. The Transformation Center is in the planning process right now, bringing the early learning hubs and the CCOs together to really help build the relationships and, um, and foster them, them working together. So I, I would say the, the, the broader question that you brought up around uh, CCOs working with the social service um, organ, you know, sector in general, is absolutely a goal of the CCOs. Uh, the first few years have been more focused on the kind of clinical delivery and looking at things like emergency department use. I think our vision is over the, the coming years that the connections with the community uh, will become even stronger to address social determinants. So that being said, there are many examples of where it's already ha happening. There are relationships between CCOs and housing agencies to provide um, safe and affordable housing to some um, at-risk CCO members. There are relationships with uh, public health um, organizations um, at the local level looking at obesity prevention or tobacco cessation. So we could, we could talk a lot about that, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll end there just kind of by saying there is hope for stronger relationships and looking more um, upstream in the future at the CCO level. Okay, thank you. A uh, couple, one related question. Somebody is wondering whether there are any um, turf issues or administrative turf uh, boundaries, kind of working with the early learning hubs and CCOs. Yeah, it, it, William Fuller was curious. That's a, that's, uh, that's a good question. My understanding is no, not yet, because really it's the, the, the CCOs aren't feeling like, oh, that's my area too. They, I think they're, um, they feel like they, they haven't, quite frankly, have enough on their plates right now. And so I, I, my understanding is I think they're, um, they're kind of welcoming their relationship with each other. But I'm not, that is not my area specifically, so we could, we could follow up with more information. Okay. Somebody is asking, do you feel your metrics in your ability to measure are strong enough to guard against underservice? That's an interesting question. Thoughts mm. about that? Yeah, I, I guess um, what I would say about that, I mean, that's always a risk uh, that I think you need to keep track of, and I, mean, I think we're well aware of that. One of the things to um, uh, understand about our metrics is that it was also legislated that there be a committee, a metrics and scoring committee, um, that would be responsible for uh, looking at that plus also um, developing the measures or coming up with the outcome measures uh, and process measures that would that we would be held accountable for. So there is an ongoing process um, that is constantly, we're constantly looking at those measures. We're looking at our data and trying to evaluate whether, uh, whether we're, we're um, uh, meeting uh, the, what we are expecting uh, to do. Uh, we can also look at things like um, like disparities, and so this is also a group. But it, it is a, it's a group that's appointed by the director um, uh, and is an ongoing group to uh, look at measurement. Okay, great. There's also a question in there about panel size, and obviously you said no, <laughs> there's no, when you've seen one CCO, you've seen one CCO. Uh, any thoughts or are there any goals around that in terms of complexity of uh, patient uh, panel and staffing ratios? That does get into maybe some weeds there, although it's an important question. Anything you can say about that um, overall? Yeah, I guess just in terms of panel size for each of the CCOs, I think they range from as small as maybe 15 or 20,000 members to up to 250,000. So, um, you know, there are a number of them, you know, they it, it fall all along the uh, that spectrum. And what we've experienced and what lots of other states have experienced through the expansion um, is that we had a tremendous uh, uh, increase. We now have uh, close to 95% of Oregonians have some form of, of uh, have insurance. Um, and that uh, of the folks of the million uh, who are uh, in the uh, Oregon Health Plan or Medicaid, you know, 90% of them are assigned to a CCO. Um, so we've had, we felt uh, very good about um, uh, some of the things that we've accomplished in terms of, of, of some of the enrollments. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm, I want to get back to, as we sort of start to climb to the top of the hour here, you guys have been fantastic. 
um, Ron and Chris. Let's 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 talk about this kind of next phase and sort of private uh, payers and where you go next. And that sort of relates to a question I had in my back pocket what you're learning even from some of the other states. You mentioned you were part of the state innovation model initiative. Uh, they may not all look like Oregon, but there are uh, some other states, Minnesota, et cetera, who are part of uh, uh, in engaging in these kinds of changes. So I'm curious about, maybe it's a two-parter, what you might be learning from them and or what you're learning together and, and where you're headed uh, and with the private insurance area and private payers. So why don't we start with the spread, because I think that's a bit of an easier question because we have some real concrete steps there. Uh, the uh, goal is definitely to spread the coordinated care model, and that's why I started out to talk by describing the model and then talking about the coordinated care organizations who are serving Medicaid. The coordinated care model right now is, is actively being spread to the uh, public, um, the public employees, so the government employees through the Public Employees Benefit Board, that's what we call it in Oregon, and the educators, the, the teachers in Oregon through the Oregon Educators Benefits Board. The uh, plans that contract through for OEB and PEB are expected to, um, to deliver services under the umbrella of the coordinated care model. So that gets us to, I'm looking at Ron here, I feel like it's another 300,000 Oregonians. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, just through that avenue. And then I'll let Ron talk about some of the efforts that we're supporting around alternative payment methodology that will yeah. fold in more than just the, the CCO, um, CCOs. It'll go broader than just that. Yeah, I think well, we're looking at a number of alternative payment methodologies, and, and, and a lot of these decisions are made at the CCO um, level. And you know, certainly having a global budget is, is, an, is an alternative um, payment methodology. And also understand, I think, uh, in terms of the spread, what we're seeing are uh, some of the CCOs are also administered by uh, private insurers also. So they have plans um, uh, for Medicare and, all, and private insurance plans, and they're also the uh, administrator for a CCO as well. So again, ways in which we uh, uh, feel like they're um, potentially a spread. Okay. And I'm sorry, it was a big area to ask about what you're learning from the other states again, another program. Uh, but uh, is that proving to be a very fruitful uh, type of exchange going on? And uh, maybe we'll get some WHI programming going on that as well, uh, being part of this uh, learning with other states. And you mean through the, through the state innovation yes, model grant yeah. program, uh -huh. right? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. I would say that Ron and I have participated in some SIM um, convenings with other states, and there are others at, at OHA have all, who have also participated. Right. You, you're also right in saying, or you're right in saying that Oregon's model is very unique compared to what other states are doing. And my understanding, I'm looking at Ron for validation, is that some, most states aren't looking as comprehensively at their health system transformation through their SIM grant. They're maybe looking at expanding their patient-centered medical home um, uh, you know, spread or something, something like that. So right, I, and I and I think that what we've what we've learned from some of the other states are some of the interventions that they're using either in the patient center, medical home mm -hmm. payment methodologies. You know, we've had we have these opportunities to actually interact with each other uh, to learn about what seems to be working in other states uh, about using ACOs as a as another um, a way to deliver care uh, to Medicaid populations. Uh, you know, looking at the accountable uh, um, healthy communities uh, work um, and uh, some of this is, you know, we've been having those uh, discussions with each other and so that's really helped us. It's uh, been uh, great to have those kinds of partnerships. Okay, thank you. Well, I this is kind of wrap-up time and we'll have to do that quickly. Uh, I, you, you guys have been, <laughs> we've made you talk <laughs> nonstop, uh, kind of parting, parting thoughts and then I'll, I'll go to Trissa and, and then we'll kind of wind up. Thank you. So I, I guess that my own part, my parting thought is that I, I always tell folks that I think the horses are out of the barn. Here. <laughs> um, I don't think we're going to be. I don't think we're going to be going back to the old way, and that's actually a pretty profound thing for someone who's been in clinical practice for almost 30 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a pretty uh, a profound experience to be p uh, part of this. Uh, but the horses are out of the barn. I'm not sure what it's going to look like in a year or two years, but I, I'm pretty sure it's going to look different um, in this state. And, and it's actually pretty pretty exciting. 
Definitely. And I would just end by saying that, that just the fact that, that, that the Oregon model can be spread to other states, and we hope that happens. <laughs> and then, you know, that what's so exciting, I think, to, to so many of us in Oregon is that it's really focused on promoting health instead of health care. And so just looking at, you know, feeling really optimistic about that, as, as Ron you know, said, looking toward the future. We don't know what the future holds, but I think we're feeling optimistic. That's thank fan- you. That's fantastic. Well, thank you. Trissa. And and just thank you as well for being innovators, for being out there in front and learning your way through this and being willing to share that learning with the rest of us because I think the pathway that you're paving is a very important one. Absolutely. I want to really thank uh, Chris DeMars and Ron Stock so much for their time, time spent also helping me prepare and uh, pulling uh, information together. So much going on, and they had to kind of boil it into, uh, you know, our, our pot here of WIHI. Thank you, Trissa Tor as always for your reflections and insights and we'll be staying engaged and thank you terrific audience you asked so many good questions tried to get to uh, most of them uh, please uh, don't forget you can download the chat when you get off the program today if you were just joining us by phone you can get all our resources and the chat etc by emailing info at ihi.org next up on WIHI on May 21st we're going to the title of the show is now what best practices for newly diagnosed cancer patients Really interesting research that Len Berry has been doing, and we've got a great panel that he's helped me put together. So please, I hope you'll tune in for that. Uh, By tomorrow morning, thanks to John's help, we'll have an archived edition of WIHI on all the resources, slides, etc. You can also find it on iTunes. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. Again, my uh, sincere thanks to our panelists today and to a great audience. The people who help make WIHI possible are John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Mario Bello, and Ruth James. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. It's just about lunchtime in Oregon. Good day, everyone. Thank you so much. (laughs)